Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. And uh, thank you particularly for those of you who've supported us all the way through the COVID stuff and still continue to do so that we can get what we need to say out across the world. Also, we've got a great uh, night coming up for Halloween, which is moving from Sunday to Saturday. Uh, It's going to be fantastic. Bring some people. You know, we've got to now be starting to think about rebuilding because evidently some people have ghosted us since the uh, start of the, uh, the pandemic. So we've got to rebuild. But this will be a great opportunity just to bring uh, some people along. It's going to be a, a fantastic night and we, uh, we give you a big welcome to that. Um, I want to talk to you today about truth decay which is a very human problem. Now, my mind always works in pictures. It works in metaphors. I I sit very comfortably with that. And so when I look at something like this and start to think about it, I think, well, you know, to declare the world is suffering from truth decay can mean very different things to different people. I'm sure that if I were to ask the question on a very contentious subject, what do you believe about what is happening and what has been done about the COVID crisis, we would get at least two very different meanings of what we think is truth. But if you think metaphorically about truth decay, decay creates a cavity or a void. You know, tooth decay creates a cavity. It creates a void that then gets filled with an artificial non-organic substance which is not really tooth. And what happens in truth decay is it creates a cavity and a void that gets filled with an artificial non-organic substance other than truth. And we need to be aware and conscious of this because it's very important for our lives. Now, in that wonderful clip that originated my thinking on this subject with Jamie Oliver showing all the gunk and junk that goes into making chicken nuggets... You saw an interesting phenomenon because the kids hated what they saw, but when the equation became not to have chicken nuggets, it's funny that all the information they had been given and the revelation of what was going on was put to one side in favor of having chicken nuggets because that's what they wanted. So they chose to ignore, downplay, dismiss, Anything that interferes with the predetermined, maybe experiential encounter that we associate with the given situation, and we are all guilty of it. It's just it's not chicken nuggets for us. So what we experience in the Jamie Oliver clip may best be described by a verse in the ancient biblical book of Proverbs, where the writer of Proverbs said, like a dog returning to its vomit... It's as gross as it sounds, 
And in wisdom, the writer was trying to explain something to us that we have a tendency when we don't know how to evaluate what is happening around us in truth to do the equivalent of a dog returning to its vomit. Disgusting, isn't it? We think we'd never do it, but I think there's wisdom to say that we often do because it's the same thing that was shown in the Jamie Oliver clip there when all the kids suddenly raised their hands and said, I'll eat it. So what is truth? How easy is it to come by? How do we recognize and respond or react to what we think is truth? Does it matter? Is it really that important? Or is it just a relative thing? In the study of truth, you will hear people talk about objective truth and subjective truth, and Prince Harry type truth, which is my truth. And so, so, is it just a relative thing? Is it exclusive? See, the way I was raised, nobody said it was, but I was raised to believe that what we believed in our commitment to our faith was exclusive. And if you didn't believe that in the way we believed it and outwork it in the way we expected, then you had not got the truth. How arrogant. Yes, Even in the account of the trial of Jesus, which you can read in the book of John, when he is interrogated by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Pilate said to him, what is truth? I think it was a genuine question. I think he was trying to make sense of what he was faced with. But he found himself not saying, here's the truth. He found himself saying, what is truth? And I think for more of us, it would do us good, instead of saying, this is truth, to be asking the question, what is truth? It's messed up my life in the last five to ten years, I can tell you. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And to summarize the rest of that verse, by his measurement of truth, he says, I find no fault in him. But by the measurement of the religious group, the Jewish authorities at the time, and the religious Pharisees, he was at a fault worthy of crucifixion. So which was truth? One believed he was worthy of crucifixion. The other one says, I find no fault in him. We do have a tendency to only gravitate, sorry, we do have a tendency to only gravitate towards truth that we like. Often our application of new truth fits with the parable spoken by Jesus about putting a new patch of cloth on an old garment. We often hear about the one where Jesus said you don't put new wine in old wineskins because the skins will burst. But his next statement is just as significant. He said you shouldn't put a new patch of cloth on an old garment because the way that they work will mean that Jesus said the tear will get worse. Because you can't patch an old garment with a new, new cloth. And nor can you put a new truth onto your old belief system. You have to be willing to renew the garment. And renewing the garment means the whole thing that you've been dressed in. But if you try to fix it, and some are in great distress that I know for this very reason. 
And guess who's to blame? The one who brought the patch. So I know it's my fault. It usually is my fault. Because if you try to put a new patch on an old garment, the way that they move means the tear will get worse. And so you create a problem rather than fixing a problem. And that's what happens with our approach to truth. So let me read you one other piece of wisdom that in the book of Matthew is quoting from the, from the book of Isaiah, which has some tremendous wisdom within it. And Matthew says this, uh, writes this about Jesus, talking to the crowd. He says, though seeing, they do not see. And he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will, ever, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, hard, in its choices. The chicken nuggets have had their effect. The heart's become calloused. So now we, can't, we, can, we can see what's happening, but we don't perceive it. We can hear what's happening, but we don't understand it. Because they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. This is what truth decay is. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. I propose to you that most of the time, it's not truth that we're looking for. I have a sneaky feeling that you're not going to hear that message in any other church in this city this morning or possibly mostly in the country. It's a great lesson. If truth can be perceived, <coughs> excuse me, if truth can be perceived, does it look the same from every angle? And what are the implications of that? The big implications in respect of my childhood and my growing up and my entering into ministry, the implications are huge. Because I believe that truth was only revealed from one perspective and one perception. It's interesting, there's another verse in the Bible which I find intriguing. And it's in a, a classic part of the scripture that evangelicals particularly are very familiar with in John 16 and verse 13 it says but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth but you see if you look at this a little deeper and stop getting all you know I understand the statement I was told oh the truth is not a thing the truth is a person it's like yeah but now explain that to me Oh, well, I can't. The truth is just a person. Meaning Jesus is the truth because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which I'll deal with in a moment. But can't explain any further than that. So it, there are many things about truth that, that the sound of them and the ability to repeat them are very simple, but actually you have no idea what you're talking about. And so in this verse, it's interesting because it says, but when? Now, you only say when if something's not present that is going to be present at some future time. When he, the spirit of truth, so there is a, a spirit of truth, this would suggest, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now here's what you have to accept from the words of Jesus. Then at that point, they had not been guided into all truth 
despite the fact that Jesus was physically present with them, talking to them, teaching them, and doing what he did best. But he was even saying, as they looked at him and listened to him, there needs to be a guiding into all truth. In other words, this is not all truth. This is truth, but it's not all truth. And I use that from Scripture because people say, what does the Bible say? That's what the Bible says. So how we approach this subject of truth is important. You know, when Jesus said, I am the truth, is it possible if we change the word the to is, that we have a better concept and understanding of what it was he was saying? Did he mean the truth is the I am? I am is truth. I am his way. I am his life. And if you want to know more about that, go back over our last couple of weeks of messages. Jesus, I, did he mean the truth is the I am? Do we find truth where we look for it? Unfortunately, the only tool we have to describe truth is language. And language is a wonderful thing, but it's also a problem because language is linear. And what I mean by that is language can only really embrace you or invite you into a single perspective or a single concept at any given time because it's language and language is linear. It works linear on that way. It's just a straight line. Another word is it's unidirectional. Language can only go in one direction at once. Now the problem is that idea of language tends to dualism because when our ideas are built out of language, dualism comes up and dualism is when it leads us to the absolute right and the absolute wrong. And that's the tension we all face because as we hear language, it gives us a linear perspective depending on what we heard and then we decide they're right, they're wrong. This is right, this is wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. That's the linear perspective of language. So how do we address this knowing that nature is multidirectional and multidimensional? If you want to understand that, the scientists tell us that the universe is expanding outwards from a center at a remarkable phenomenal rate. And that expansion is going in all directions at the same time from a central core. Now, again, with my metaphoric way of thinking, I could relate that to God, the source, and everything moving outwards. But what you have to grasp is nature is telling us that the the universe is multi-dimension. Therefore, it's telling us that truth is multi-dimensional. It goes off in all directions at the same time and is consistently moving outwards and creating more and more. And you cannot bring it into one thing. You have to let it be what it is. So maybe we need to acknowledge that what is true is linear because we saw something, heard something, had an experience. So that's right, that's wrong, you should, you shouldn't. But also to, to, to acknowledge that truth is multidimensional. So, so what is true is linear. 
Don't put too much store on that because truth is multidimensional. And that's where we need to be today, in the multidimensional understanding of how truth works. And then like the football in the video, you will long to talk to all those isolated groups and tribes with their distinct beliefs to say, no, listen, it's a multidimensional. Believing a thing to be true doesn't make it true. And I think I've sometimes believed things into truth because I believed them, they must be true because I believe them. But for all of us, just because you believe a thing doesn't make it true. And experiencing something, which we were raised in a lot more, a bigger experience, which is one of the reasons I shy away from too much experience in church now, is that, is that experiencing something doesn't make it true even though you had a true experience. Oh, I really felt the presence of the Lord today. That means where was the presence of the Lord yesterday and where will it be tomorrow? Oh, well, I, I experienced that, 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 that Jesus is just, the, if I just believe in Jesus, which I, I accept and, and, and I just come to know him, then I'll be saved. But then I have to look at this from the multidimensional and say, so... In taking into account the biblical numbering of time, which is about 4,000 years before Jesus, the, the young earth people who I don't agree with suggest the earth is only 6,000 years old because they begin it where they can date back characters in Genesis. I mean, I think it's pretty stupid now, but that's another story for another day. But if from the point of what was supposed to be the fall of man... 4,000 years before the coming of Jesus, why the heck would you wait 4,000 years to redeem something that you know fell 4,000 years previously? So do you see how we've got to have a multidimensional perspective? Now, I believe Jesus was the Christ. I have a faith in that process, but what I cannot accept is some of the now explanations because it's the one color on the ball. So, so maybe we need to acknowledge then this multidimensional perspective. And in the context of experiencing, there is an actual process of study for that, for experiences. It's called phenomenology. Now, I'm not making... Thank you, Georgia. I'm not making this up. I didn't invent that word. You know, if you put it, if you put it on a word document, it will not get underlined for a spell check because it's an actual thing, phenomenology. And it's the study of experiences. And phenomenology is what we enter into when your endorsement of truth is purely experiential. Oh, I really felt something. So, so we feel there's a truth because... We felt something. Now, I'm not by any means downplaying feeling something. I have felt many things, but experiences don't make a thing true. 
Did I experience something real or was it just a real experience? And you have no apology to make for real experiences, but you must understand real experiences don't make necessarily make the experience real. So what is a real experience? We'd then have to ask, do we experience an awakening of truth or an awakening to truth? See, experience gives you an awakening of truth. That means what's already inside you, what you've been taught, what you've been pressed with, what you've been given to understand, and that awakening simply, that experience simply is awakening of truth. But when you have an awakening to truth, instead of going this way for your truth, you go that way in all directions for your truth. It's, it's, it's an experience that is an awakening to truth. And I thank God for being changed from being awakening of truth to an awakening to truth. So, and I'm going on a little bit here, but let's talk about the Christ mystery very briefly. You know, Jesus Christ, Christ was not Jesus' surname. I came into this because of what I was told about Jesus. But you need to know I stay in this because of what I know about Christ. This is what Richard Rohr said. The Christ mystery is not a one-time event, but an ongoing process throughout time, as constant as the light that fills the universe. And so it does not limit the Creator's presence to just one human manifestation, namely Jesus. It goes beyond that. Wrestle with that as you wish and as you please, but you've got to face it. And I remind you again that the earliest referencing of this group of people who joined the way was not Jesusians. It was Christians because they'd caught something, a revelation beyond just the human manifestation. So let me finish with this. If our grasp of truth can be affected by the presence of certain conditions in our lives, what are those conditions? Okay, so following on from uh, my last section, may I say, for those of you that are interested in it, I am a Christ follower and I am a Christ lover. That is not in question. But when we look at the, trying to answer the question we asked previously, we have to take into account that the two main conditions that affect our grasp of truth are cognitive dissonance, and that's engaging in actions that help minimize feelings of discomfort when faced with conflicting beliefs, values, or attitudes. So we don't like to feel uncomfortable, so cognitive dissonance makes us engage in things that stop that feeling of discomfort. So if new truth makes us uncomfortable, cognitive dissonance will dismiss the truth because we don't like the feeling of the new truth that we're having to engage with. And then the second one is confirmation bias, which is the video that we've just seen. And confirmation bias is accepting information that reinforces a predisposition, existing belief, or attitude. It's interpreting information only in ways that support a presupposition. And as human beings, because of truth decay, we are very guilty of that. 
Even very early in the present crisis, most of us will have leaned one way or the other in terms of what was being given as information, what the action was. And the truth is then, what we do from that point is that we interpret all the information we receive to support the presupposition that we have. And that starts to get nasty, doesn't it? And this is very, very true in religious life, in church life. And Christians are extremely guilty of this. Well, I would say Jesusians are extremely guilty of this. So how much of what we think is truth is shaped by the social construct created by the majority? One of my great issues because of looking at social sciences and social behaviours is how you can consolidate an idea as truth simply by using the weight of majority. Well, if everybody believes it, but you see, because as human beings, mostly we are vulnerable to the strategies that cause us to take the least path of resistance, we can easily create a majority, and then the idea is this must be true because the majority say it's true. I could go into my biblical background here and show how every time the majority was believed in the Bible, it was wrong. <laughs> and some of you know what I'm talking about. So, so we get this issue that's shaped by social construct, and, and this can be the wider majority, as in like everybody, or it can be the majority within our social, socioeconomic group. You know, well, you're a working man, you must vote Labour. That's what I was told as a boy when I started work. You're a working man, you must vote Labour. Not to vote Labour is to betray your roots. Now, what I believe or don't believe about that is simply illustrating to you how what we think is truth is shaped even by our socioeconomic background. And of course, religious groups, you know, that's been my whole life. Religious groups are terrible for this that letting what we think is truth be shaped by the construct created by the group. And so actually you never resolve the idea of truth decay because you're always self-confirming your own truth. Now, sociology and psychology would suggest our desire to engage with truth stops at the point where it meets the need we're presenting. So provided the thing meets the need I'm presenting and relieves me of any discomfort, the truth is sociology and psychology prove that my desire to engage with truth stops there. It's enough for me. But there is no such thing as it's enough for me in the multidimensional world of real truth. And we have to engage it, not just because it meets our need, but because it goes beyond that in a wider understanding. So if you're seeking the truth, then what you don't know is more important than what you know. That's how I can tell a truth seeker from somebody who has confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, and is not moving any further. Because if you're seeking the truth... What you don't know is more important than what you know. And it takes a lot of humility for us grown-up people to acknowledge and accept there's more that we don't know than there is than we know. 
I've been raised in church, trained in scripture, preached most of my life, but I've come to the point to admit about God, there's more that I don't know than what I do. See, because what you think you know you know, well, I know that I know this. What you think you know you know stops you pursuing what it might be that you don't. I know that I know that this is the way. I know that I know this is the answer. I know that I know this is the description of God. And the problem is, as I've said, that that stops you pursuing what it might be that you don't know. Truth does not accommodate belief. Belief has to accommodate truth. Now what we felt is God looked at what we believed and he accepted that as truth. But truth doesn't accommodate belief. Belief has to accommodate truth. So for all of us, we have to be willing to change our belief in order to accommodate truth. Now here's the thing, if you don't want to change your belief, you cannot accommodate truth because truth will always make you change your belief. So it has been said, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth has put its trousers on. Pants for you Americans. So where does that come from? These token statements that we get in society, they all have a basis in reality that made somebody decide to use those linear words to try and explain what they were feeling. A lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth has put its trousers on. What kind of lies is that referring to? It's referring to the ones that appeal to our confirmation bias because they relate to our need for security, certainty, belonging and meaning. And either the trusting compliance side of our nature comes out or our sceptical defiant one. Now, just for your amusement, I, I like to walk and think. So as I'm walking and thinking, I put notes on my phone. And being an iPhone user, I talk to Siri. Hey, Siri. And so I put my notes into Siri, which, which I find Siri's rubbish, really. <laughs> so I put this note into Siri about, you know, um, that the... Uh, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth has put its trousers on. This was Surrey's version. Ali can travel halfway around the world before the truth has spotted trousers on. So I therefore conclude that when you find the truth, you will know it's the truth because it will have spotted trousers on. Yeah, and called Ali. So let me, let me wind this through. Cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias evidence their presence in something we came to denote as tribe over truth. I will believe what the tribe says rather than what the truth is because we believe the tribe has all truth and the tribe doesn't have all truth. So we become defensive of whatever that tribe may be, it causes a tribe over truth and tradition over truth. Someone once said, which I thought was great, tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. 
Okay, so here we go. According to a 19th century legend, truth and lie meet one day. Lie says to truth, it's a marvelous day today. Truth looks up to the skies and sighs, for the day was really beautiful. They spend a lot of time together, ultimately arriving beside a well. Lie tells truth, the water is very nice, let's take a bath together. Truth, once again suspicious, tests the water and discovers that it indeed is very nice. They undress and start bathing. Suddenly, lie comes out of the water, puts on the clothes of truth and runs away. Furious, truth comes out of the well and runs everywhere to find lie and to get her clothes back. But the world seeing the truth naked turns its gaze away with contempt and rage. The poor truth returns to the well and disappears forever, hiding therein its shame. Since then, lie travels around the world dressed as truth, satisfying the needs of society because the world, in any case, harbours no wish at all to meet the naked truth. Jesus said memorably in direct challenge to his listeners' version of truth, but you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. That's the power in truly knowing the truth. It makes you free, it forces freedom on you. So there can be no freedom in the absence of truth. We can be in bondage to true because we've never grasped what it means to take hold of truth, that multidimensional thing. So are you suffering from truth decay? Having said all that, are you suffering from truth decay? Then this would be my prayer. May we be delivered from our cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. Having eyes that see fully, ears that hear carefully, and hearts that burst with understanding. And may the outflow cause us to be life to all around us. I pray you will not fear truth, and in so doing create a barrier to her while not realising your own fear of truth, and that the naked truth, wherever she comes from, does not have to hide in the well of your being. So in the prayer that we often share with each other, good luck. In Jesus' name. And may the Lord help us to deal with tooth decay. Let me give you one other thought. Having said what I said about truth decay, we don't want to fill the, tr the tooth as we don't want to fill the truth. We have a little conversation that's gone on for years in our home that if evolution is such a big cheese, why after all this time do we still get bad teeth when they're so essential to our life? Why don't we grow a third set and a fourth set? Because surely the evolutionary process would say, you're going to need these and you're going to look stupid without them. And you'll finish up only eating things that you can suck rather than you can bite and that could kill you. 
And that's our argument with the evolutionary process. But the reason I raise that just in closing is I don't want you to get some religious filling, some social filling, some scientific filling, because you have not solved the problem. The truth is, that tooth needs to come out. That truth needs to come out, and it needs the new truth to grow in its place, so that you have healthy truth growing in the right place that is not, it is not, uh, it is not the word I'm looking for. It is not substituted and it is not added to by some kind of filling we put in to make what was decaying in the first place last longer, is what I'm saying to say. So I hope today that the dentist chair has not been too painful and that God, the source of all things, will help us to resolve our truth decay. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash qchurchyork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.